I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, a psychoanalyst based in Sweden who works with people internationally. And this is my podcast, Rendering Unconscious. Today's guest is Katie Bohintz, an astrologer, poet, and data scientist. She's here to talk about her new endeavor, The Ratio, a project to study astrology with data science. For more information, you can visit Katie's website, katiebohintz.com, and visit The Ratio's website, theratio.space. Rendering Unconscious is celebrating five years. I want to take this moment to thank all of our guests, listeners, and Patreon community. Thank you so much. I wouldn't be here without you. To support the podcast, you can join our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Vanessa23Carl. Your support is so appreciated. Thank you so much. Vanessa, you and Carl had your first um, psych art cult conference. That was 2016, right? It was June 2016, which I remember because it was a, a new moon in Gemini, I think, or Taurus. Um, anyway, so for the talk, I wanted to talk about uh, the relationship between mathematics and astrology. And then walk through the uh, 2000 years of this history. And one of the things that I said was, hey, look, we've got big data now. We could do huge statistical experiments on astrology. And somebody came up to me after the conference and said, "Uh, why don't you do it? And I was like, you know, at the time I was like, I don't know if I could do that. But now here I am. Now we're talking about it. I've done it. Um, so it was, you know, and I, I probably will talk more about that paper also in Fenris Wolf, um, because of that's the, that's the intellectual meat of this, why this is so interesting and why I'm so driven to have this company. But, uh, let's see, 2018, I did, uh, like, um, a year, almost a year of project planning for this, like dreaming of it, visioning it, like putting it out on like PowerPoint decks, like this is what I'm going to do. Right. Um, and they were originally going to be pitch decks. I was going to work, get, you know, uh, 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 try to get people to give me money. But as more, more and more people I talked to about this, they were like, don't do that. You're going to give away too much of the company. And you have risks here because you're trying to do real science. By the way, we didn't even just say that. The goal of the company is to do data science on astrology um, in what I see as a, a continuation of a 2005, at least 2,500 year old math problem um, that has existed on, uh, on earth um, in every major civilization. Um, so anyway, so we, you know, I essentially I've been working, um, I've been working my day job full time. And then also, you know, my poetry, my art stuff. Um, but COVID allowed me to have all this space and time so that I could, um, you know, in the evenings and in the mornings, then I work on the ratio. Um, so we're finally uh, launched with our website and 
um, ready to start capturing data. So we want to get 20 million people to give us data. Uh, that's a lofty goal, but that creates a huge data set that we would be able to actually look at um, the underlying assumptions of astrology um, to check for statistical significance. Um, it would be the first time in human history that anybody has been able to do this on this large of a data set. Um, and so it that's the thing, you know, there's so many boring pieces to this, like UI, UX, and, you know, like, you know, servers and databases and stuff like that. But the thing that's really exciting is getting to interact with this um, amazing question. Like, you know, when I think about the scope of this, I'm like, oh, my God, like, you know, it feels like I'm talking to Hypatia or something. Um, <laughs> uh, but that's 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 what motivates me to keep doing all this grunt work <laughs> yeah that's great and I think 20 million people is doable there's so many people that are interested in astrology and you've got this great kind of combination of understanding astrology and being a data scientist yeah so I mean that's yeah so my background uh, uh my day job you know aside from being a poet is you know because I don't make any money off of poetry sadly um, but, uh, so I've worked for, um, God, uh, 15 years now in, um, in specifically in the marketing pillar, um, doing, uh, uh, data science, data engineering, data analytics, um, all stuff for like fortune 500 clients. Um, and that's actually where I got the idea for this was I was like, you know, I was like a young analyst and I was like, you know, furiously trying to get a deliverable out. And I, you know, I would get a five minute break or a 10 minute break in between things that I had to do for clients. And I mean, it was a pretty grueling work and uh, I would get just a little break, but I couldn't turn my brain to start ingesting words because I'd been in numbers. So it would be really hard. I would try and like read a New Yorker article to just kind of like calm down and like ingest some information, but my brain wouldn't focus on it. But what it would focus on was astrology because I would, it was charts and it was numbers. So I just started, you know, that was my downtime. And that's how I started teaching myself astrology. And that's where I got the idea was I was like, why am I, I'm doing this stuff for all these like fortune 500 companies on marketing data, but you could really do this on anything. We could do this on astrology. And that to me is much more interesting. These, you know, you know, big data is new in uh, human society, relatively speaking, arguably like about 20 years old. Um, but, you know, we apply it to corporate uh, scenarios because corporations are the ones who have the money to, you know, develop this technology and apply it in mass and big scale. Okay. Well, but, you know, there are so many applications of this. There's just so many, there's anything in humanity that you want to look at, you could do it, you know? So, um, I think astrology is a really cool way to look at it. Um, yeah. And astrology, I mean, it's, it's basically math. So it's just like looking at symbols and numbers and kind of how things relate to one another, just like kind of algebra. I mean, I'm not a math person, but that's how I see it. <laughs> oh, absolutely. No. So, um, so my background is actually have a, a degree in mathematics, um, and one of the things when you actually do a math major, 
one of the things that you study is you you start to you take this course called analytics and you go you you basically go back in human history and you do like the earliest proofs that were landmark in mathematics and then you kind of go all the way through human history and you do it in like a linear progression so it gives you this sense that that mathematics evolved uh in this very linear way but when you really get into it, the crazy thing is that it only, it like evolved one way in the West, but then like it evolved differently in India and it evolved in, in, um, uh, in the Arab countries. Um, there is a lot of crossover between like Greek history and then what happened in the Arab States and, you know, et cetera. Um, so there's a little bit more continuity there, but then like Chinese mathematics is, you know, is different different trajectory as well. But what's interesting is they all, all of these civilizations discover the same things, mm. right? And um, like calculus comes really early in India, um, like around the time of the Greeks. And we don't discover calculus. The West doesn't discover calculus until like 1600, right? But what's crazy is we were very, very close to discovering calculus in like 6 BC because we had trigonometry. And once we discover the calculus, we also learn that you can prove the calculus exists via trigonometry. Uh which is which is just wild. Like if you think it really kind of gives you this idea like oh this all really like fits together mathematically. Well, the the thing for me that I was thinking about is why were the Greeks obsessed with triangles? Like you have to, like, if you've ever seen a chart of all the trigonometry formulas, it's really like, it's intense. It's like where, like, how did you came up with like hundreds of these? Like, why, like, why were you doing this? Like, why were you so obsessed with this? And the answer is very literally because they were obsessed with the stars. And actually someone just mentioned this to me over the weekend but the other piece that I had always thought about, like, where do you come up with this sine curve? Where do you come up with a cosine curve? Where do you come up with the, um, the uh, all these curves, right? You come up with it from the ocean and the waves that are coming through and the riptide coming through the other way. Wow. So in some sense, it, what mathematics describes is uh, a perfect universe of as above, so below, right? So you've got these sine curves in the ocean, and then you've got the angles that the the stars and the planets are making to each other uh, up top. And that's, you know, how we get uh, Western mathematics. And I believe this is true in every major civilization, um, early civilization. That's so interesting. And like you said, they've all had astrology. They all had astrology and astrology is actually technically the oldest data science on earth. So it comes from literally the capture of data points and then recognizing a pattern within that data, which developed the Zodiac. Okay. So if you, so um, they wrote down the position of all the planets and the price of wheat like six or seven times a day on these stone tablets for like 600 years. Hmm. And that those patterns are what 
generated the specific zodiac uh, signs and symbols in Western astrology, um, differentiating specific constellations, which would be included in the zodiac, from the hundreds of constellations which are in the sky. Um, and, and that became the sort of the, the sub data set, if you will, um, from which the rest of astrology comes through. And then by obsessing over what is the relationship, like why, why is Jupiter over here right now? Why is Mars over here right now? Like tonight in the sky, I don't know, um, if you've seen this, but you can see Mars very clearly right now. Um, in fact, actually, um, the moon just eclipsed Mars uh, in this past full moon. So the moon went in front of Mars, which is kind of cool. Um, but the ancients would have been obsessed with something like that. They would have been like, what is the meaning of this? What, it, what, what, what does that mean? These things are alive. They're talking to us. You know, <clears throat> anytime, you know, Mars was in relationship to Venus and you could see them both in the sky or Mars was in relationship to Jupiter, you could see them both in the sky they would start to try to understand the relationship between each other. And that's what gave birth to these triangles. You know, the concept of the triangle fundamentally. So, um, yeah. It's amazing. Uh, and I'm so glad that you're working with it because I get very frustrated when people like clearly like, you know, love Greek philosophy or things like that. But then when they, they throw, they throw out things that they think aren't useful anymore. And it's like, how can you kind of pick and choose in that kind of way, like, you know, what, what you think but, is still valid from these people. I, oh, I think that's so, certainly true. Um, in, and in order to really understand that time period or that culture or that thought process, you have to understand all the pieces of it. Right. Um, and you know, that was like, if you look at the early Greek history and then like later Greek history, I mean, it's fascinating, right? Like you, you start off, it's like just very, very, very deep astrology. Right. Um, and then you start to see over a couple centuries that they break out the word astrology from astronomy and even into mathematics. But up until that point, it hadn't happened before. Um, uh, but, you know, I think probably as more people are aware, even up till like Galileo, right up until we have this like enlightenment period, um, almost all scientists were also astronomers and astrologers, like, like 99%. I mean, it almost was a, a qualification um, for uh, uh, being an intellectual. It's amazing. And I often think yeah like so much of life was based on the sky and these kinds of things and now like so many people never see the sky like live in cities and never see the night sky at all exactly and it's it's like I mean I I remember the first time I well I grew up in kind of like outside of Cleveland Ohio so I did get some sense of the stars growing up um and actually it's really funny that um every time I go home I just start laughing we my, me and my mom put these like uh, glow in the dark stars on my ceiling. But my mom's rule was you can only put them on your ceiling if you do them like actual, like actual proportions to the solar system. So you're learning something. So you literally like, I'll, I'll be at home at my parents' house and I'll turn the lights off and I'm like, holy shit. Like, <laughs> this is 
<laughs> like look at all these it's like a whole solar system like i have all the moons of jupiter and like you know pluto's way out there and like a sense for the scale of things so i told my mom last time i was home i said mom this is your fault <laughs> that i became like a crazy astrologer like <laughs> yeah good job mom <laughs> um we laughed about that but um but yeah no it's a totally different thing to be in a place where there's no no light pollution and understand the magnitude of how bright and how fierce and overwhelming the stars are um and if you think about it, when was when did we really even start having light? I feel like it's like a Vincent Van Gogh painting where it's like starry night and and it's like juxtaposing the um, the cafe street lamps with the stars, hmm. and that that was like this radical innovation at the time. Um, that all of a sudden there were street lamps, you know, or, or you know, aside from fire, you know, hum- humanity didn't have any much else except for this these stars and you know if you think about it let's say you kind of like wake up your environment is I need to eat you know I know that certain times of year there is stuff growing that I can eat certain types of certain times of year these uh animals come that I might be able to eat or that might eat me And then, and the only thing that I can do to try to figure out to control this environment is I know that, okay, when the sun comes up, certain animals come out. When the moon comes up, certain animals come out. I can see this moon going on a cycle. Every night it's different. Um, You know, probably most women in your pack got their periods on the full moon or the new moon together. Um, So that was kind of an obvious tell. And then, you know, those things, you know, the length of the days, like you were talking about the solstice, these things were very obvious at when, when, in the absence of buildings, light, you know, um, it was actually quite obvious. (laughs) Like it was the thing to study. Um, and to me, it says that, you know, we have, uh, preconceptions about, uh, ancient, the ancients that the ancients were maybe stupid. I don't think that's true. I think ancients were clearly capable of very significant levels of analysis, you know, like to give birth to something as complex as astrology. Like today we think about astrology as sun sign horoscopes, which actually were uh, developed in the 1800s to sell newspapers. Hmm. But really like when you were doing astrology, it was like a very serious thing. You didn't have computers, couldn't do it automatically. There were very, very serious tables of you know, how do you calculate the location of each of these planets at this time of birth? And then you had to by hand draw out a natal chart for somebody. It was pretty crazy, you know? Um, Yeah. And they put this all together with, you know, with what stone tablets. I mean, it's wild. And, you know, an abacus, like it's, it's pretty crazy. So, and that's why they developed these sophisticated mathematical formulas so that they could 
use the formula, like the ellipsis, to figure out, and the triangles, to figure out where things were in the sky at the time of birth. So, um, yeah. It's amazing. Human innovation. That's humans at, at our best. Right? Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, we definitely uh, spent a lot of time drawing lines between what was in our environment and what was happening to us on Earth. So, yeah, I wish we, I hope we still need to do that. Yes. Yeah. So, <laughs> so important. That, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So, the idea is that we're going to get, um, we're going to make this big data set and then we're going to look and see, okay, um, can we find, you know, let, let's just continue this process, right? Okay, we've been doing this for millennia. All right, well, now we have two new things in our world, okay? We have statistics, which we didn't have. Um, statistics, statistics is actually a relatively new mathematical technology. Like the idea that things are relative to each other and that they can have like a percentage of yay and a percentage of nay. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. That's pretty, that's pretty new, Okay. And then the other thing we have is, you know, we have big data. So um, like the CEO of, uh, of Google said at some point, like, you know, between Jesus Christ and uh, Google, we humanity created something like, I don't know, three terabytes of data. And in the past, you know, 10 or 20 years, we've created like, three bajillion yottabytes of data like it, it is scale at which we can create and store data is just has exploded i mean it's 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 i mean it's it's as landmark as a printing press obviously um so now we can we have these two things we have big data and we have statistics so we can continue our uh, evaluation and um and our scientific uh you know uh, relationship with astrology. Um, and why not? I feel like we sort of owe it to our history, uh, as human beings, this, this, this relationship with the stars gave birth to all of mathematics. I think we owe it to go back to it and look at it again and say, okay, all right, cool. Let's, let's look at it. Let's look at it with open eyes and our most recent technologies. Yeah, that's amazing. I didn't realize that connection, but of course it makes perfect sense. So I did it. You go to the ratio dot space on the internet and enter in your birth information. And I got Anthony Bourdain. He's <laughs> my celebrity astrotin, which I love. <laughs> Anthony Bourdain is pretty badass. Anthony Bourdain is pretty badass. Mine is uh, uh, Dorothy Day. Um who it sounds like Doris Day, but it's not. So Dorothy Day was an activist reformer of the Catholic Church. <laughs> she was like an anarchist and a socialist and like this great act, great activist, great organizer, a total badass. And she was like, Catholic Church, you must change, uh, which I, I, I like. Um, we, um, we hand curated these Astro Twins. 
that's partially what took so long. It doesn't take that long to build a website, but it does take a long time to hand curate Astro Twins and then like write the bios and like do all the pictures. And all these and, videos, it comes with a little video. Yeah, we made the art for the videos and stuff. So they're, I mean, I think they're valuable. The goal is to get us, hopefully we'll like go viral at some point. We'll like reach that R not where, you know, things will pop over and everybody wants their Astro Twin. Um, and that would, that's the goal. So if you're listening, please go check out your Astro Twin. Please share it online. Help us in our, uh, you know, our desire to evolve astrology into the next stage. Um, and, uh, and that's all you have to do to contribute to the data science is putting in your birth information. That's it. That's it. You can tell as long as you, so when you give us your data, by the way, and we have a really cool privacy policy cause I'm, this is like my day job stuff. So we will, and check it out in detail. We're only using people's data in aggregate. So like you type your information in and like, we'll, we'll keep your name in case we send you an email in the future. And we say like, dear Vanessa in the email. But when we're looking at that, at your data, we're using your phone number, your email address and your IP address to create what's called a unique identifier. But your name is is, is um, made anonymous. So once the data comes into our database, it just gets like an anonymous ID so it won't say like Vanessa Sinclair. It'll say like anonymous ID. This is a birth date, time and place. And it has these planets associated with it. And it has, you know, the, this is this is the astrological data. And then we'll be purchasing, purchasing extended behavioral data. And what we'll be doing for the analytics is we'll look and see, okay, for people with sun sign and cancer. So again, not looking at the name, it's just unique ID. For sun sign and cancer, are people with sun sign and cancer more likely to own a home than other signs? Yes or no? Can we find cancer's all about the home? Right, because cancer is all about the home. Okay, <laughs> is Capricorn more likely to like own their own company, or is Cancer more? Or not sorry, not Cancer. Capricorn, like more likely to you know they're said to be very professional. Are they more likely to like, I don't know, do something professionally, right? I want to know which sign makes the most money. I think it's definitely Scorpio. <laughs> just You're not kidding. biased though. <laughs> I'm not biased. We'll just, we'll have to see what the, we'll have to see what the data says, but you know, it's, it's stuff like this where we can um, first look at the the current assumptions and then also expand. So like one of my big dreams is I want to do 23andMe data, genealogical data. So get this and kind of look and see, are there any astrological traits that tend to run in families? Maybe like generation after generation, generation. Can we see that at all? Um, do we see anything about health data or health patterns, right? We know that there's like these really interesting um, things about what when you were born in the year and the cutoffs for sports. So hockey sort of says like, okay, you have to be born by this date on it's like September 1st in order to make it for the winter season. And so what they've found is that the best hockey players are all born in August 
because they've got like an extra year on the cutoff um, of like growth and development, which if you're in sports at like a young age, that really matters. Right. Mm. So there's, there's, it's like, what other correlations can we see in the data that also expand our current knowledge of astrology? Um, so that's cool. Right. Um, there's sort of the biggest limitation that we have is the data available. Um, and this is true for all of data science. This isn't just true for astrology. It's like, you know, if you want to test <laughs> like our, our Scorpio is more sexual than other, uh, signs, you know, you, you have to generate that data set of like, how often do you have sex? How long do you have, you know what I mean? You have to like generate the data. So, um, not all of that is like, um, commonly available, uh, on mass, um, like, uh, some other things are like, you know, do you have a home? Like, do you buy, you know, what kind of car do you drive? Is it leased? Is it owned? Like, you know, financial data is obviously pretty ubiquitous. Um, so. Yeah. And all uh, that stuff is online. Like, uh, I was just looking up addresses, and it's like you could just put in anybody's name and like town and it'll just tell you exactly where they live and all sorts of stuff about them now. Like <laughs> so much of our information is just online that I didn't realize. Oh my god, it's <laughs> it's, it's it's everywhere. I mean, I that's why like I'm I'm actually really proud of our privacy policy because I think it's um I think it's pretty good. The other thing that we've said is like look, we might sell the company, right? Like if I sold the company, like I sell the company. Um, but you know, we're not going to sell people's data. Like I, I, we're not, we're definitely not advertising on the website. Like, I, I mean, that is such, I have spent, 50, I've spent so much time doing that. It's a huge amounts of work and B, I don't think it's really worth, I don't think the work and the people, I don't even think you really make a profit off of it. Like, I think it's, unless you're Facebook or something like, you know, and that's, that's not, that's not what we're doing. We're doing data science on astrology. So you know, we'll, you know, where the idea is, you know, hopefully people will want these NFTs because they'll be like, look, this idea is so cool. Like it's so interesting and historical that we want, first of all, we want our Astro twin. And second of all, that, you know, we, we want kind of want to be associated with this project. Like we think it's cool, you know, it's new, it's, it's interesting. Um, and, you know, for people who are, you know, I, I would argue trying to make money in NFTs. I don't know what has longer term value in the world than astrology. <laughs> like literally it is the oldest valuable thing. So, you know, probably a pretty good bet that uh, our NFTs will be worth money in 10 years. I now hope. explain to me how NFTs work. So, NFTs are essentially, so uh, NFT is a non-fungible token. Um, that means that essentially what um, the, um, the Astro Twins are, uh, we created these little gifts. So they're like, there's one background for earth, one for air, one for fire, one for water, for each of the um, elements of the Zodiac. Um, and then... Um, there's only one of each, uh, 1,728. Okay. So there is one for a sun, moon rising. You know, if your sun is Aries, your moon is Gemini, Scorpio rising, 
that's one NFT. So they're unique by sun, moon, rising combination, meaning 12 sun signs, 12 moon signs, 12 rising signs gives you 1,728. So everyone in the universe has an astro twin, but it's a, you know, there's also like, you know, we've got a big number of people and a limited number of these astro twins available. What the NFT means is essentially that this uh, piece of digital art has been loaded and certified to the, um, it, we're doing them on the Ethereum blockchain. And that becomes like a little string. And if you're in your crypto wallet, you'll see the string. It'll say, I own this NFT. Um, and you pay for it in Ethereum. And you can also sell it in Ethereum. So one of the things that people have been doing for with the NFT markets is, is it's not just to have, you know, you pay Ethereum. Our NFTs are, you know, 1.5 Ethereum, which is not an unsubstantial amount of money. It's you know, a couple thousand USD. Um, but the idea is that you buy this and you can either keep it for a very long time, like a trading card and with the under the assumption that it will go up in value or you can sell it because somebody else is going to come through that quiz pathway and look at their NFT and you might get an offer from somebody next being like I really want this NFT this is mine blah blah um you know and in that way you sell it for more money and then theoretically make more money so um that's uh that's the idea Cool. I have not done yeah. anything with cryptocurrency before. Really? Really? Um, well, so uh, get what's called MetaMask. Okay. Um, there's, uh, they have these like crypto exchanges. I don't know if you read about this guy, Sam Bankman Freed. He's like kind of ruined crypto exchanges probably for like the next year or two. <laughs> they were insolvent. But the masks are solvent. I mean, the underlying technology with the blockchain is essentially what it is. It's, um, it's a very, very big database that is governed by algorithms and computer principles that allow people to, uh, everybody in the world can interact with these blockchains. Um, but it creates a universal record. Um, and the two most popular ones are Bitcoin and Ethereum, their underlying blockchain technologies. And they also have a coin, which allows, um, you know, Bitcoin you've heard about or Ethereum, which I'm sure people have heard about, that allow people to do financial transactions um, on, this, uh, on the blockchain. Um, and, you know, it, it, the NFTs are uh, an interesting thing because it creates ownership within the digital world at the individual level. So while we could own, um, while we could own uh, uh, a website that we had created, there was a whole lot of internet digital assets that were, you know, it's kind of unclear, or hazy who owned them. Um, and this sort of made uh, the NFTs really spread out the possibility of ownership and, and sales really was the other thing too, because you could sell stuff. Um, so there's a lot of, it, it's, it's, it has a lot of overlap with like 
like legal stuff with like copyright, copyright laws, like um, public domain, um, uh, you know, rights of publicity, right of personality, um, like, uh, but it's different because you can, in some ways, like you want the viral, you want the thing that went viral because the thing that went viral, whereas like, whereas art that's on your wall is primarily going for the fact that like you can put it on your wall and like no one else can put it on their wall because there's like one physical thing this is a little bit different it's sort of like if you own the nft you have the paper trail that you own it and you have the potential to sell it so you have the financial value of it but the value of it doesn't come from exclusivity it comes from reproducibility and 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 widespread uh access uh, it's kind of a different concept of art ownership for the um, for the digital age, like the the um, the Nyan cat. Have you heard about this? No. There was this like little tiny GIF of this little cat that was like I don't know, it was like cat like in the it, it was like pix heavily pixelated. It looked like uh, came out of like a '90s video game. It's like this little cat. But this cat had been shared online like 20 million times or something. So they sold the NFT of it. And it was like, it was really cute because it was the idea was that you could like buy or own or sell a meme, you know, it was, it was kind of adorable. Um, so, um, you know, that's and that's like totally different from like the Mona Lisa, right, which is in and of itself a meme because everyone goes there to see it to the Louvre or whatever, but they're, and they're, they're looking for eyeballs too, but this is just like a, uh, you know, digital distributed methodology, I guess. Yeah. And so. they make the copies of the Mona Lisa with postcards and stuff like that. So it goes everywhere. There you go. And they make monies off of it every time. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It becomes a part of culture. There you go. There you go. Um, yeah, it's not wrong to not do anything with crypto, but I do think it's going, it's here to stay. I don't think, I mean, these distributed databases are so useful. Yeah. It sounds really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's the way, it's the way that people can trade things without banks. Yes. A lot of people really like it for that. They think that they're going to like, I mean, I feel like it's, it's just like a new bank. It's not right. Like, Cause banks are all I, online now too. I mean, all the currency is really actually just digital at this point for it, the most it part. Is. It is. <laughs> so, so part of the reason that they are like, Oh, we've like decentralized these bank banking systems. I mean, part of it is that they're saying, well, it is a little bit true. Like if you go to like um, Wall Street or something and you try to go into a bank and like say, I want to open up this big of an account with you and I want to do this kind of trading with you and I want it. There are really heavily regulated rules to access. However, in the crypto space, there are ways that you could just like, you literally, like if you know how to code good enough, you can code your own digital currency and start publishing it tomorrow and people can buy it from you. 
and then they'll be doing business in that digital currency. Um, and that has, so that deregulates the, the crypto system allows for anybody to enter into it. Now the reality, and, and so that, that is actually cool, but the reality is that, um, you're just in a new, you're just in a new bank, right? Mm -hmm. Because if you're going, if I'm, let's say I'm going to buy Vanessa coin and say you make a, a coin and I'm going to buy Vanessa coin and I'm going to try to like go do business in Vanessa coin. Well, if nobody else has Vanessa coin, then that makes it hard. So there is a thing with shared economies. Um, and so you want, um, you know, like you want to be dealing in a currency that other people also want to be dealing with because then you can trade with each other. Um, you know, is that Bitcoin? Is that Ethereum? Um, I think they'll probably stay in the market for a very long time. Will they have widespread use and adoption? Um, the same way we have like the US dollar or, you know, the Japanese yen or, you know, these national currencies. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, PayPal is pretty ubiquitous. They're, they're almost global penetration and they accept both cryptocurrencies now. So you could make an argument um, that, that that would eventually occur. Um, but we've got a long road to get there because the, um, you know, the governments, first of all, like the governments are saying, hey, this stuff is completely unregulated, right? Like we have these regulations on banks for a reason. And now look at what happened with Sam Bankman-Fried and FBX. Everybody thought he was a crypto god. Turns out there was a, what, an $8 billion hole in his balance sheet. And that ended up defrauding all of these people. And they're not backed by the FDIC. They're not backed by national laws that guarantee those deposits. Um, it has the, you know, there, there are reasons why things are regulated. So there's going to be a, a lot of, you know, I was just heard uh, somebody speaking about this the other day. Um, and they said, look, we shouldn't be regulating the decentralized things, but we should be regulating the things that, um, you know, uh, that are, they're more general public. Um, and, uh, you know, this means that the, and the, that the crypto system that was designed still allows people this kind of democratization of, uh, market entry, um, if you want to create a new product with product within the crypto space, but if you are going to like offer, if you do actually get to the point where something's at scale, then it, yes, it has to, you know, be regulated because you're impacting people's lives. Um, you know, we can't have this, you know, FTX sort of thing. Um, now that said, there were some regulations in place on FTX and, the the weird thing about it was why weren't even the baseline regulations working? You know, um, that, you know, sort of like, mm, guys, you didn't like, where were your funders? Where was due diligence on, you know, you know, rounds of investment, you know? Um, you know, it seemed like people were just like giving this kid money and then like believing him that everything was fine. Um, without actually looking at the the details on the balance sheets. So, you know, um, but the third piece of this is that, you know, if you can imagine the United States for a very long time, you know, since Bretton Woods, right, we have um, 
benefited significantly from having a U.S. dollar as the global reserve currency. Well, if crypto threatens that position because it becomes so widely used, and I'm not saying it is today, I'm saying, you know, 10, 20 years, um, you know, is that going to be another different kind of fight? Um, does yeah, it get, push back? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're, you're gonna have, you know what I mean? So, um, you know, and there's some some paranoia. Well, yeah, yeah, it's yeah, <laughs> it's a complicated thing. The other, the last thing I'll so, um, my ex boyfriend is like uh, one of the. Uh, I like to describe him as like a founding architect because it helps describe like how deeply he was involved for the past decades in theorizing like how this stuff would work and be implemented um, in order to explain the kind of, you know, levels of conversation that I've been around. Um, I mean, it is a fascinating, to me, the way I describe it is I'm like, you know, you guys are just like a bunch of video gamers who like took your video games and were like, let's make this in real life. <laughs> totally. Gamers are like, oh, we're just going to like take this stuff. We're going to like mine it out of the ground like a video game. <laughs> it's so funny. But they, you know, they came up with something interesting. I mean, it's it's interesting. It's smart. It's, you know, it's but it, and it and the first uh, group of people who used this stuff um, were a lot of criminals. Like it was a lot of, you know, it was a lot of like, you know, there was an ATM, a Bitcoin ATM in um, Long Island or in Queens that would do $34,000 in cash transactions a day, like back in 2016. That's all marijuana money. Like, you know, like people being like, I need to wash this. So I'll, I'll get rid of these dollars and, and get Bitcoin and, you know, people globally, internationally, like princes and shit who were like, Oh, you know, get rid of this money, put it in Bitcoin. Um, so to me, knowing that that was part of the early driver for this, I mean, well, no crime's not going anywhere. Like there, there will always be people who are using this currency stuff like <laughs> they need somewhere to wash their money so I, I probably just said way too much but no it's it, so interesting and i love we have to show the other part of you because now you're in your you're in your numbers mind as you said but you also have your yeah. poet poet mind um mm. and of course we have to pay homage to bernadette oh yes 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 um yeah um, so uh, Bernadette Mayer is, um, thank you for uh, mentioning that, Bernadette Mayer is arguably yeah, top three poets living alive um, in America, um, in English language. The other two arguably, be, arguably being Ann Waldman and Alice Notley, um, you know, of that New York school poets um, who, you know, helped establish everything in like the sixties and seventies and eighties. Um, and Bernadette passed last two weeks ago, 11, it was 11, 2022. So actually I had two poetry mentors die. I was like, Oh my God, that's some numerology. Like, please, 
stop. <laughs> um, but Bernadette's fabulous. She was um, a really just such a fucking badass. Um, so, so she she did um a lot of concept the range of her work was really enviable just it, she did conceptual poetry she did lyric poetry she did epic poetry she did um short poems she did skinny poems she fucked with form like just give me something to fuck with and she would break it and she would make it beautiful and she was so funny um she was um one of the first uh women poets in America to really uh gain equal uh publishing status with men um and uh, really uh, a true groundbreaker um i'm honored to uh work on the press tender buttons press their first book was bernadette mayer sonnets started in 1989 um and she was a personal friend i mean she was just amazing she would do this thing she would like you'd be like sitting at dinner or lunch or whatever having a wonderful time and preferably eating oysters and uh steak tartare those are her favorite foods and you know you'd be sitting there she'd be like, tell an anecdote and then she'd say don't you think that's weird <laughs> <laughs> And she was just like that. She, she was just like, and she started laughing. And then everyone else would laugh. We'd be like, yes, Bernadette, we think it's very weird. Like, it, it was really, I mean, she just, I mean, so charming. Um, life is so, pretty weird. Life is super weird. Life is super <laughs> weird. But there's a great uh, New Yorker article that write up about Bernadette that just came out. And it was like, it just was really kind of captured how, how magically in love with the world she was, you know, she thought everything was interesting or, you know, fascinating or why about that? Or, you know, really, a really engaged person. Um, and she saw the humor and everything. It was just. So. Yeah. And who was the other mentor that passed? Oh, uh, Doug Lang. Um, Doug Lang is in, uh, uh, well, he was in Washington, D.C. Um, he was very different from Bernadette. So he almost, he rarely published. Um, but he was, a, I mean, by all accounts, like I'll, I've got to, I just actually, someone was saying to me yesterday, I've got to dig this stuff up. And he, they finally came out with his sort of like collected poems actually last week. Uh, and he just was, he was the, an uber uber mensch like just the nicest guy super funny always had something pithy to say funny but like you know and not boring but like also very very nice and generous and empathetic person um he was born in wales so he had this great accent um he taught at the corcoran uh in washington dc for almost 40 years i think oh wow um and you know he just a really really cool guy and he I love to write um so even you know when I I left Washington DC in 2013 and um just before I left we did a writing group with my friend um Brandon and Megan and Doug and like you know it's like he would always run these groups with his students because it helped him stay active and he he would he would just be totally equal playing we're all just doing this together um really um just a wonderful person 
I'm going to have to check them out. And I also love that you are one of, one of the few people who have come to all the three psych art cult conferences. But I also love the range that you presented. You presented on the 12th house astrology in in the first one. And then you present on poetry as magic in the one in Italy. And then in Copenhagen, you presented on contemporary Chinese cinema. And now, yeah. as I told you, I had gotten Ai Weiwei's memoir, which I'm reading and is amazing and I'm learning so much. Um, yeah, and I'm like totally on a Chinese cinema kick now. Oh, cool. Yeah, it, <laughs> I, that memoir is great, isn't it? It's amazing. Oh, good. You have to tell me what other stuff you're, what else are you watching? I've been watching, going through the guys that you, that you recommended. Oh, cool. Oh, cool. Let me know if you find something new. Um, I, I mean, yeah, that it's, um, I mean, yeah, I kind of fell in love with the movies when I was there because it, um, it just, it helped me understand more about you know, you'd be walking around and you're like, why the fuck is China like this? Like, so weird. Like, why, 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 why? And, um, but the movies helped me understand, you know, from more human perspective. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Um, yeah. So, and then and it also, it's interesting because, you know, I grew up in Miami. So I, there's this like close relation to Cuba and everything that's happened there. Um, and also reading his perspective of when, you know, Mao took over and the communist thing, because it's like, there's such a, it's so like fashionable, I'm noticing to be like communist in like academic circles. And so many people I have on talk about Marxist ideas, which of course sound great, <laughs> but it's like everything I read about it and everything I've experienced is like, didn't, didn't turn out so well, you know, in that well, respect. You know, it was really, I mean, that's, I mean, this is go really going back, but when I was in high school, I lived, I did my senior year of high school in France and growing up in America, you hear this word socialism spoken of with great derision. And when I went to France, I was like, this is great. Like I'm super into socialism. Like this is really, people are happier. They don't have this terror of like, what's going to happen if like something goes wrong? Like, cause they'll know that they'll fix it, you know, cause there is a social safety net and it removes this level. It, it, this is my analysis. It removes this level of like day-to-day terror um, that, you know, I think makes a society a nicer place to be. Absolutely. You know, and, um, you know, and so part of what I wanted to do was go over to, I was like, oh, well, if socialism is not that bad. Maybe I'll go to China and find out about Marxism. Well, it, mm. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't have the same experience. My experience was, you know, this was really, really a tumultuous period of history. And it is so complex and so complicated to parse out what was Marxism and what was sort of developing nation, if you will. But personally, um, like, I mean, and there are real problems with capitalism, don't get me wrong, but like, I, I think, uh, pretty consistently, I see a huge, huge, huge problems with implementation of Marxism in uh, the 20th century to the tune of 
mass death. And I mean millions of people dying. Um, it, same is true in the Soviet Union. You know, same is true in North Korea. Um, and to really try to level out those KPIs, really, it's very, very, very hard. But, I mean, I, I, I think, you know, blindly um, uh, cheering for Marxism. Um, I, I find, I, I, I don't know, I'm a very operational person. I'm like, I want operational detail about, like, call me a technocrat. But I'm like, I, okay, let's lay it out what is this going to do and how is it going to impact people and, and how is this going to operationally work? Um, not that I don't share the goals of Marxism. Absolutely. But I think that operationally socialism is a, uh, a better way to achieve those goals. Yeah. I think you even have a line in one of your poems, like, like Marxism, Marxism is better on paper. <laughs> oh yeah. Marxism is like monogamy. It exists best on paper. <laughs> <laughs> that's very true those are very true words <laughs> those are very true words very yeah, yeah. true words well that's yeah. yeah that's the thing it's just uh but that's the thing that frustrates me is because it's like all of these all of these professors that are talking about this they would all be killed <laughs> like don't they you know every time this has happened you all have been considered bourgeois and you've been killed so you you would be dead <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. So it kind yeah. of it confuses me there. <laughs> I might not understand what academics are doing, but I want them to be able to do it. You know, what I mean, like just like think and talk to each other. And like, even if it, they don't have, even if it's not implementable, like I want them to be able to sit and think and talk about things that may not have any relevance or may, you know, but I want them to be able to do that. But uh, but when you end up in a communist society, they get rid of all those people, you know. So yeah, I mean, it, they certainly did it in the twentieth century. Um, you know, it's 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 central planning, right? So what happens is if you say to everybody, okay, we're gonna we're just gonna distribute all the rice, the the issue is you you don't like there there's no. Um, you could theoretically find a food distribution system that was centrally planned that was equitable, but then you're relying on everyone to be crystal clean and good and not corrupt. And we that know that exists. Like we, <laughs> yeah. <there's no> story. <laughs> like we are, we're fucked up. And also, you know? as soon as you have someone, you could say you're going to distribute everything equally, but as soon as you have someone organizing that distribution because someone has to organize it now that person has more power than everyone else and as soon exactly. as they get more power yeah they become corrupt even if they had the best intentions going in communism is a great idea but it doesn't solve the problem of power capitalism doesn't solve it either um you know what what solves the problem of power is conscientious uh you know regulation right like i mean i would like i don't know that that is that power is i mean very complicated no, we're getting into power that's all yeah. about like system and regulation and like how things are being you know but it's in ethics it's an art you know um and you know i mean like the thing about the one thing i try to take out of marxism is so we had you know places like china where they melted their pots and pans. I mean, they literally 
set the country. And it was a stupid idea because, and I will say this, I agree with Plato. I agree with Slavoj Žižek. Poet should not be president. Like I'm, I'm totally okay with that. Like I don't think. Like I think a great example is Kanye West. Uh, he's a poet. He should not be president. Donald Trump. Mao. <laughs> like Mao was a poet. Um, like I'm fine with that. Um, and and I will, you know, I I will not run for president. That's fine. Um, but you know, Mao was like, oh, let's just have this technological revolution, and we will go past America in in uh in a decade and in order to satisfy his power they didn't in his poetic dream local officials said okay we're just gonna okay literally like he's gonna kill us if we don't solve this problem so they said all right give us give us your your metal your pots and pans and we'll melt it down and tell him that we're gonna build it into something advanced and it set the kind I mean, it literally caused it one of the greatest famines in world history. And I mean, it just like there. So there's so it's like, how do you separate that fuck up from Marxism? Right. Or uh, from a communist ideal? How do you how do you separate out like Stalin's purges or Castro's purges and the cults of personality that arose from, you know, uh, 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 um, from this Marxist ideal. Well, in some sense, that's why I think socialism works better because it takes existing society and instead of being born out of a revolution, which I, I kind of personally think that anything born out of, like, like there, there's a great saying, somebody said a uh, Frenchman and uh Chinaman are sitting next to each other. And the Frenchman says, what do you think about the French revolution? And the Chinaman says, time will tell. And it's sort of like, you know, it, it, it really did. It took a long time for France to be cool. Like they were, they were in a cycle of revolutions for hunt for centuries. Um, yeah, I think they, I also, I was just reading the book. I'm reading at the same time as, as Aweiwei's memoir. I'm reading a book called Romantic Outlaws. That's all about Mary Wollstonecraft and Mary Shelley. And it goes back and forth each chapter well, between their two lives. It's so good. Yeah. And right now, Mary Wollstonecraft is in, uh France after the revolution and she's there when the king is beheaded and everything like that and like writing about it and it's incredible but she said like which I didn't realize like they changed their calendars and like had this like revolutionary yeah. calendar where they changed the months and the way that time was told and, and everything and it ended up completely like uh isolating them from all the countries around because because there was not this like exchange rate thing going on and also like the, at the at this point you know they're beheading like 25 people a day just like anybody that they've decided is anti and that's the problem you can't you can't give people that power because no matter what they believe or how much they believe in what they believe you know it's as soon as they get that power people they, people turn corrupt. It's just exactly how it has. They get power crazy. And then now yeah. they're just, yeah, they're just beheading everyone and putting people in jail for being a tourist or being what whatever they decide, you know, and you never know that's going to be you or who, who they're going to pick out, you know? Well, that's what the problem is with Rev. I, and I see this as, so I see this as sort of a, a problem to like drill into revolution, right? Like when you have a revolution, it often requires burning at the stake the opposition in order to force that change 
and say, okay, you know, like we've got to have thinking this way and it's ideological. We got to have thinking this way or we'll throw you in jail. We'll murder you. We'll, you know, whatever. And, and, and it's, you know, the moment of revolution is like this beautiful, peaceful thing, but it, you know, but like, look at the United States, like we had revolution and we're like, oh, rah, rah, we like are the, the free ones. Okay. Yeah. But what, what, what did we do to the native Americans? He said, oh yeah. yeah that's like, the thing too, with the communist like, countries, they can like, they get rid of all of the religions and the indigenous yeah. beliefs and all of that. It's all, it's all gotten rid of. Yet and and to me, I think it's. I to me, I believe there's a. And I'll bring it back to astrology. There's a Carl Jung, uh, and and the mo the, the concept of astrology is that at the moment that you were born, that you woke up and came out of your mother, <laughs> that you took on, uh, this birth time, that you took on the energy of the planets and the human being at that time in, in history. And that creates the natal chart, which represents your, it's not your absolute fate, but it's your personal tendencies of where your energy is strongest if left to your own devices, no other influences. And I think that it is, what, what is the word called? It's called, um, it's not synchronicity. It's um, it's that that things take on the quality of the moment of their birth. And so I think the same thing is true with political systems, countries, like like new, like these revolutions. So if you are born out of blood, then it's almost like, you know, it's like the revolution has to have that, that um, the qualities already there inherent in it so that it blooms like that, as opposed to the revolution coming out of like this, like really like, you know, um, uh, warfare or blood or control or, you know, whatever these things are, um, that end up leading to, you know. Yeah. You don't want a new ideology, just replacing an old ideology, you know? Exactly. Exactly. And who's most likely to lead a revolution? Like what was the personality type? Yeah. Really, really. Narcissist. Like, (laughs) (laughs) Oh, surprise, you know, (laughs) surprise. I can change the world. (laughs) I can change the world. Like you have to be a little bit like delusional. And then I have enemies, fuck off, you know, like, so we see, you know, characters like, you know, Bolsonaro or, you know, Trump or Mao. I would put Mao in that category, you know? I mean, I think, um, anyway, I don't know. I don't know. Well, I had to show the I had to show the full range of Katie Bohens. Oh, <laughs> yeah, big. Uh, we were t- we were talking. Uh, I was out this weekend and said, "This is what happens when you have a, a mathematician physicist father." <laughs> theoretical. My dad was a theoretical physicist, and he would just like we'd sit down at the dinner table and be like, "What do you think about this? What do you think about this?" <laughs> What about this? And who was his astro twin? Oh, so my dad's astro twin was uh, St. John Vianney, who is a Catholic saint from the 18th century. And my mother's was Putin. (laughs) (laughs) We laughed about that so hard because... 
my my like my mom we, we were all waiting like on the family chat and like my mom's like oh mine's hooting and me and my brother were my brother was like oh yeah oh yeah jan because you uh killed all those people last year and like threw them in prison oh yeah because you just did i mean it was like really because my mom is like the saint and like my dad's he's not like putin but my dad was like <laughs> he's like appearance not a saint <laughs> to be deceiving <laughs> so we had we had we had fun we we definitely like i definitely uh threw some funny people in the astro twins so they're not all good because astrology is not all good humanity's not all good right so we've got like i don't know like 12 serial killers and like a good range uh, like 15 nazis like i mean they're 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 definitely like low they're, they're like smaller but like you know <laughs> they're in there well they're in there they're in there it's, it's, it's the human it's the human bouquet <laughs> so everyone needs to go to the ratio dot space the ratio dot space please go to the ratio dot space be so grateful Please tell your friends. Please put your uh, Astro Twin on. Um, we'll give you a free video. Please put it on your social media so other people will want to go there too. Um, tell people about this project. Uh, follow up with us. Um, this is just the first round. We are um, we are going to capture all of this data, raise some money through these NFTs, and then we are going to, uh, we will have uh, uh, some freemium findings, what we're finding in the data science on the astrology. Um, there'll be some stuff for free. There will also be a newsletter that you can subscribe to monthly, um, like $5, um, that will share in detail all the stuff that we're looking at in the data and what we're finding. Okay. Ooh, um, I'm signing up for that. Yeah, that's going to be really, really fun, but it's going to, it's going to take some time to get and some funding to get us up and running on that front. Um, and then we'll also be developing, uh, eventually the end game of this is we are going to develop uh, a new uh, statistically significant astrology. And that, uh, that will be our IP. And we will have a suite of astrology products on top of that so that you can look at our astrology um, for things that you are like, wow, okay, this is pretty scientific. Um, Super interesting, Katie. Thank you for coming. Thank you for having me, Vanessa. Thank you so much. All right. Bye. Bye, dear. Bye, Pippi. Bye, Carl. <laughs>Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with Katie Bohens. For more, visit her website, katiebohens.com, and visit The Ratio's website, theratio.space. Rendering Unconscious, episode 205, is Katie's presentation, Poetry as Magic which she presented in Murano, Italy at the second Psychoanalysis Art and the Occult Conference called Rewriting the Future, 100 Years of Esoteric Modernism and Psychoanalysis. Links to this, Katie's social media and websites and her various books can be found in the liner notes accompanying this episode. 
Visit renderingunconscious.org for links and more information. And now the song Woman of the Year from an album I did with Sonic Mastermind Pete Murphy called Night of the Hunter. Available at highbrowlowlife.bandcamp.com. Enjoy. Woman of the Year. 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 Yeah, Woman of the Year. 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 Woman of the year woman of the year woman of the year freud believes that the bond which integrates individuals into a mass is of a libidinal nature <laughs> 